The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And let's read in chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the, into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even, a single, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, well, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. There's no way around this scene. There's no way around the fact that reading this scene is incredibly graphic. We see the worst kind of betrayal. We see envy. We see suicide. We see blood money. We see conspirators gathering around that manipulate events that would lead to the murder of an innocent man. And meanwhile, people 
who are convinced of Jesus' innocence do nothing to stop it. People who are convinced that this man has done nothing wrong do nothing to help him. It's a gruesome scene. It's a tragic scene. It's really graphic. And there's one thing that pops out to me immediately as we read this passage, and maybe even to you. We just got done 10 weeks reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we mentioned that, these are the, the words of Jesus. And, and if you have a red-letter Bible, we were reading the Sermon on the Mount, and everything was just a sea of red. And now, it's gone black. Now the text has gone black except for one little short phrase, and in the Greek it's just two little words where Jesus responds to Pilate and says, you say so, you say so. And Jesus doesn't have to speak, and here he's not speaking much at all where he just got done speaking so much. He's silent. He doesn't have to speak because everything that needs to be explained in this text is really plain for us to see. He doesn't need to tell stories or explain what's going on. It's, it's right there. The scene speaks for itself. It's clear as day. There are two kinds of people in this passage, two kinds of people in this story. There are wicked people, and then there's Jesus. There's guilty people and conspirators and evil people and sinful people, and then there's Jesus. There's Jesus and everyone else. As the evil and different people in this passage changes from person to person, the description of Jesus stays the same. He's righteous. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. Do you see the different ways that, that even Matthew, the writer, goes to great lengths to explain to us and to convince us how innocent Jesus really is and how people even saw Jesus at that time? Even look at Judas, even after betraying Jesus and handing Jesus over. He was kind of the inside, the mole that kind of that, that betrayed Jesus and handed him over to, to the soldiers and to the Roman government. And after betraying him, Jesus, uh, Judas returns to the chief priests and acknowledges the truth to them of what just happened. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. I've turned a man in who's, who's done nothing wrong. And then you see Pilate. You know, Matthew goes to great lengths to show us how Pilate even knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He shows Pilate that discerns the reasons for why the Jews would, would bring Jesus even to be tried and to be crucified. It wasn't because he had done anything wrong. It was because they were envious. They were jealous. Jesus was, was becoming so popular, and they hated him for it. And Pilate, knowing this man is not being brought forward because he did something wrong, you don't like him. You're jealous. You're, you're envious. You want what he is getting. And they hated it. Pilate even presses the crowd and even says, give me something to work with, people. You haven't given me anything. What has he done? Give me something to work with. And they don't even give an answer. Instead, they just shout even louder. You ever been in a conversation like that? Tell me. What, you try to get an answer, and they just get louder and louder and louder. And it's like, I give up. You're giving me nothing to work with. And then you have Pilate's wife who comes and pleads to her husband. and says, Pilate, leave this man alone. Leave this righteous man alone. I've been grieved enough with a dream that I had today. Convinced of his own innocence. Convinced that he is a, a righteous man. Just let him go, Pilate. Let him go. Probably didn't call him Pilate, you know. But let him go. Leave this man alone and let's get on with our lives. This is not good news. It won't end well for us. The man is innocent. And then Pilate goes over to this basin of water and he symbolically washes his hands. And you can imagine what that means. We, we even use that idiom today where we say, I wash my hands of this. It means that 
this is not on me. This is on you guys. He washes his hands and says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And even some translations and manuscripts say, I wash my hand of this innocent man's blood. And so Pilate is saying, this isn't on me anymore. I don't want to carry this because this man has done nothing wrong. No one has a case against Jesus. And yet, a case of guilt and wickedness can be so strongly made by everyone else in this scene. Everyone else, the crowds and Pilate, the complicit wife and even the, the Jewish leaders and the high, the high priests, the council, could easily be read in this passage as a story of, of all other people's sins. We could so easily read this passage and see, look at how wicked people are being. What is wrong with them? Jesus is clearly an innocent man and everyone is doing everything so wrong. It's easy to read this passage and think to ourselves, what's wrong with everybody? Can't they see that Jesus is righteous? But I hope that we're not too quick to do that. I hope that we will experience this passage personally and see ourselves in this as well. That we wouldn't be so quick to see just a story of wicked people crucifying, arresting, and betraying an innocent man, but that we would experience this passage. Because the truth of the matter is, is it doesn't matter if it's that crowd, there are still two kinds of people. There are wicked people, and there's Jesus. There's only one non-wicked, righteous person who has ever lived. There's only one innocent person who's ever lived, and it's Jesus. And so if Jesus were here today, there would still be two kinds of people in this room, wicked people and Jesus. And we can make a case through the story of our lives of how that is true. And we can make a case of the story of Jesus' life that there's nothing wrong with this man. He has done nothing wrong. And so I hope that we can experience this passage personally. And to do that, I want to explore this passage in this way. I want to look at the horror, the horror of unbelief, the problem of judgment, and the hope in our substitute. First, let's look at the horror of unbelief. I use that word horror because we need to see it as it is. We need to really see how horrible this is and how wicked it is. The scene that covers Judas's betrayal, his agony of guilt, and his eventual ruin is painful to read. Just as it is, I mean, just reading this story is like gut-wrenching. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. But you see how Matthew uh, ties these circumstances of Judas's betrayal uh, to an Old Testament depiction of the relationship between God and his people and of Israel, his chosen people. There's a reference to the book of Jeremiah. And, and also, it's, it's this, this reference is referencing Jeremiah, but it's most fleshed out in, from the prophet Zechariah, who is God's prophet to Israel. And here's how the story goes that Matthew is, Matthew is referencing an Old Testament passage. And here's how the story goes. I'm just going to summarize it for you. The story goes like this. God's people were being mistreated. Israel's being mistreated by their leaders, and God has sympathy on them, and God looks at his people, and he calls a man named Zechariah. He calls a man, a prophet, and he says, go to my people and help my people. I want you to be a shepherd to them. I want you to love them, and I want you to serve them because they're being mistreated by their leaders. And I want you to to protect them and go into that situation. And I want you to make it better because they have bad shepherds, they have bad leaders, and they are helpless. And so go in and help them, Zechariah. Rescue them from their oppressors to show them my favor. I want you to show them that I love them. And so Zechariah says, of course, he says, I will go and do that. I'll be to them a shepherd to them. So Zechariah does that and things go really well. He's able to defeat and, and hold back 
the three of the oppressive shepherds and leaders of God's people at that time. He destroys the bad shepherds, but it didn't take long for God's people to now turn on Zechariah. So Zechariah goes in there to rescue God's people from harm, and the people turn on him and attack him. So Zechariah says, I didn't sign up for this. Forget about it. Forget about it, God. You know what? Your judgment's coming on this people because they're rejecting your, your shepherd, your servant. And so I'm out of here. And he says, oh, before I leave, pay me what I'm due. And so the people say, okay, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And they pay him the 30 pieces of silver, and Zechariah comes back, and God says, Zechariah, you don't get to keep that 30 pieces of silver. You don't get to, take, you don't get to keep that for abandoning my people. Take that money and throw it into the temple and throw it to the potter. And so Zechariah does that. He takes the 30 pieces of silver and he throws it into the temple for the potter. See, the temple had potters. They, would, they made clay because all these, these instruments for temple sacrifices and rituals had to be, they had fresh, fresh little pottery and fresh things that they needed to use. And so they always, that, that was someone's job just to make pottery for the temple. So that's what it says, but here's what it means. God's people didn't want to follow God. They didn't want to follow God or the shepherd that God had sent to them. The people said, we don't want you to tell us what to do, and we don't want you to send people here to be our pastor, to be our shepherd, to be our leader. Don't send people in here telling us how to live. We want to live the way we want to live. So the people paid off the shepherd to get him out of there. They did this because they believed that they were better off without God. They're better off without God's shepherd. So they turned against the good shepherd that could lead them to God. See, Judas's deepest sin, and this is what Matthew is getting at, Judas's deepest sin is not betrayal. It wasn't that he sinned against God. It wasn't that he betrayed Jesus, the Son of God. But his biggest sin was a belief in the lie that he was better off without God. Sin is, sin is, is always the, it's the greatest form of arrogance. Sin is always a belief that we know better than God. It's always a belief that we can do it better than God has told us to do it. Sin is always a posture before God that says, what do you know about what's good for me? I will decide about what is good for me. And the root of every sin is a belief in the, in the lie that sin can offer us more than what God can offer us. For Judas, it was the love of money. Judas was known for being a thief, and he was actually the treasurer of the disciples, and so he kept the money, and he would actually go in and, and steal. And he was even so in, in, enraged with, with anger when, when you remember when that woman came to Jesus and poured that expensive oil on Jesus to anoint him for his burial, and he said, we could have sold that. Think of all the money we could have gotten if you would have just sold that. You see, he was He was greedy. Because he believed that that sin could offer him more than that God could. If you're a Christian, you're, you're not likely to think of yourself as, a, as an unbeliever. You probably have not used that term of yourself. If you're a Christian, you probably have not called yourself an unbeliever. But that is what we are when we sin, in a sense. And I don't mean that we lose the grace of God, that we somehow fall out of God's favor and lose our salvation. But every time we sin, in that moment, we are acting in disbelief and unbelief. We're not believing that God can give us what is good for us. And so we seek it out in other ways, whether it's the love of money, the love of self or pleasure, whether it is the fear of others or the love of others' approval of us. The horror 
of unbelief is not merely in doing wrong. Sin's not just bad. Sin is so bad because it is always a decision to reject God anytime we sin. It is always a decision to reject God, and Judas realizes this. He realizes what is true. He realizes that God's holiness and perfect purity and perfect innocence of Jesus, he sees this and he says, I cannot believe the horror of what I have done. The very thing that is good, the very thing that is true, the only thing that is righteous and innocent, I have rejected, I have betrayed, I have given up. And he is struck immediately with his own sinfulness and he's horrified by it because he sees his sin for what it is. The greatest form of arrogance and pride. And the destruction that comes to Judas through the taking of his own life is meant to be horrifying because it is the picture of God's judgment that destroys a person who does not trust in Jesus. It is a picture of what it is like to to reject God and to feel completely guilty and alone. Looking at Matthew's account, we may be tempted to see the problem with Judas's betrayal or the problem with Pilate's cowardice or the crowd's cruelty as they seek to crucify Jesus, an innocent man, and fail to see the root of all those sins. See, it's easy to look at those sins on the surface and fail to see that the root of those sins lives on in us as well. Do you believe that the root of those sins lives on in you as well? The root of unbelief in what God says that causes us to sin in so many different ways. The root of sin that lives on in us that causes us to come to the scriptures that, that, that tell us one thing about God and for us to say, that's fine and all, but I think from my experience and what I know, I think that my way is better. The sin of unbelief, of rejecting God. The root of unbelief in what God says that causes us to sin in so many ways. The root of Judas' sin is the same root of lust. You see, the same root of Judas betraying Jesus and handing him over to the Roman government to be killed is the same root that lives on in us that causes us to lust, that causes us to lie, that causes uh, us to have a lack of self-control, that causes us to be bitter or even to worry. The root of that sin is always, God, I don't believe what you say. I don't believe you're best for me. We embody the same sin in these characters in our hearts, and like them, we need God's grace. And like them, they, they need God's grace, and we need it. They reject God, and, and even his disciples did that. And Peter, you remember, even the passage before, we didn't read it, but Peter's denial, and Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. And, and Peter is led down this road of, of, of increasing rejection of Jesus. We even see those who are closest to Jesus in need of his grace. Because apart, uh, apart from his grace, we, like Judas, would be destroyed by the crushing weight of God's judgment. Let's talk about the problem of God's judgment. As this passage presents, the problem with judgment, and though a not, a, not a popular truth today, and I understand that, the Bible teaches that God's, God is just in his wrath. That God is a, an angry God, that he is just in his wrath and judgment. And many say, I don't like the idea of a, a wrathful God. Give me the loving God. I don't like the idea. I want a God who's love. I want a God who's loving. I don't like the idea of an angry God. Or even some would even say something else. They may say, you know, 
the Old Testament was the God of anger, and he was a God of wrath, and I get that. We see that depicted, but the New Testament is a God of love, and, and there's two different gods, two different manifestations of gods, of God. But don't you realize that if you want a loving God, you have to have a God who's angry? What do I mean? Allow yourself to think about this. Consider a family dealing with a family member who's struggling with drug addiction. Think of a family member who's struggling with, with who is physically abusive. Personally seen this scenario, and I'm, I'm guessing that you probably have too, where someone you love is destroying themselves. And that addict is so frustrated. That addict is frustrated, and then they say, why can't my family just love me? They're so angry with me every time I do this. And I say to these people, they're angry because they love you. Not because they hate you. If they hated you, they wouldn't care what you did. If they hated you, they would leave you alone. If they hated you, they would, they'd be indifferent to your life. They would say, live your life. What is that to us? When you see someone that you love, Consider your family, consider your children, consider your spouse or a parent. When you see someone that you love so much that is abused and cheated and harmed, you get mad, and you should get mad. If you see people abusing themselves, and you say, you know what, we all should just live our own lives, You might not love that person. <laughs> the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is, is indifference. If you see people destroying themselves and don't get mad, it's because you don't care. The more loving you are, the more angry you will be, and the more grievous the harm, the more greater your anger will be. Now, this in, the inverse isn't true. The more angry you are doesn't mean the more loving you are. Do you get that? If you're just like a really angry person, that doesn't mean that you're, it's because I'm just so loving. So it doesn't work that way. You understand that? But it does work the way the more loving you are, the more you care about that life of that person, the more angry you will be when you see that person destroying themselves or being harmed by others. Jesus was delivered to be crucified first by Judas. Okay? Judas betrayed Jesus and he was delivered to be crucified. He was delivered second by the Jewish leaders. He went from Judas to the Jewish leaders. He was delivered third by Pontius Pilate to be crucified. So we can look at this story and see all the people that set up Jesus to be crucified. We can say Judas got him killed. We can say the Jewish leaders got him killed. We can say Pontius Pilate got him killed. But I want you to see something else. Ultimately, he was delivered to be crucified by God. For Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. We have, come, have to come face to face with this fact that Jesus stood there still before Pontius Pilate, not because he was a coward, but because he was taking the full cup of God's wrath as God's plan for him. He was submitting to the will of the Father. And the night before, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's agonizing, and he says, God, take this cup from me if you can. Please, if there's another way, take this cup from me. What is the cup? You don't have to go far in the Old Testament to realize that the cup is the outpouring of God's anger and wrath 
on sin. And Jesus is saying, God, don't pour your wrath on me. But if that's what you want, I'm going to follow you. And so we see in this story that ultimately it isn't, it isn't ultimately these people that set up Jesus to be crucified. It is God placing his son on the altar and pouring out his angry wrath on Jesus because of sin. If God is loving, he has to be most angry with what harms us and what is, what is against his character and against his nature. God unleashes his cosmic wrath on his perfect son on the cross as judgment for sin. Now, what does that say about his love for us? And what does it say about his hatred for sin? I hope your capacity as you accept that biblical truth, your capacity to understand God's love increases. I hope the capacity also increases for your ability to see the horror of sin in what it really is. The problem with God's judgment in our culture is often communicated in this question. Here's how the problem with judgment is often communicated. How could a good and loving God let anyone go to hell? How could a good and loving God kill his own son? I'm a good father. I'm not about to kill my son. And so the culture takes these problems and they put it in the form of the question and we say, how could God do that? A good God, how could he let this happen? How could he send his own son? That's not a good God. That's a, that's a description of a tyrant, of a vengeful God, of an arrogant God. But the question of the Bible and the question that we should, have, that we should ask as we work through this passage, is not how could a good God send people to hell, but the question that the Bible asks, and the one we should be asking is, how can a good God, who is perfectly good and righteous, let sinful people get into heaven? The question that the Bible presents that is most ridiculous as we read the scriptures is we should say, how can anyone be good, get into heaven? Look at this story. Everyone is wicked. Everyone is complicit. Everyone is betraying Jesus, and there's one innocent man. The question we should ask is, how is there hope for anyone? How is there hope for anyone in this room? And this story gives that answer, which I'm so glad it does, so you don't have to leave here with the same faces that you have right now. It's the hope of the substitute. You look at the story of Barabbas and Jesus a hundred times. You will read this a hundred times, and every time you will come up with the exact same conclusion each time. I can't believe they let Barabbas go. I can't believe they put Jesus in the place of Barabbas. Every time you read this, there's, there's, one, there's one interpretation, one logical interpretation. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they let a criminal go and put the innocent man, the son of God, in the place of the criminal. I can't believe they did that. He was a notorious, as Matthew tells us, he was a notorious criminal. What does this mean? Everyone knew. If someone said, hey, Barabbas just got, hey, did you hear about Barabbas? Everyone would say, what do you do now? Everyone would say, who'd he kill? Everyone would say, like, I hope he stays in for a long time. Barabbas was a notorious, he was a rioter, he was a murderer, he was, a, he was an enemy of the state. Matthew's making this, this so plain for us to see, there, there's no hidden metaphor in here. 
It's supposed to be plain. Matthew's making it plain for us to see the answer, the only answer to the problem of God's judgment is the substitute of Christ, the righteous. The substitute of the righteous Christ in the place of the criminal Barabbas, the guilty. If you pay attention, you'll see, you'll see two attempts of dealing with the problem of judgment and the problem of, of sin in this passage. And I, and I want to... I want to show you that as we finish up. Because there's a problem with judgment that we've exposed here. The problem is how, the answer, the question isn't how does, how does a good God send anyone to hell? The question is how does a good God let anyone into heaven? There's two attempts at answering that question. And the first attempt comes from the chief priests. It comes from the religious leaders. I mean, these are the ones with all the answers, right? These are the, the leaders of the church, the representatives of God's people, the mouthpieces of God. These are the ones who are supposed to be speaking to God's people. The chief priests give an answer to the problem of God's judgment. Judas comes to the priests with his guilt and shame and his treachery and says, I don't want this anymore. I recognize what I have done. I've changed my mind. I, I regret what I just did. He was convicted and he knew that he was condemned. He knew that he was placed in the judgment of God. And he comes to the chief priest and he says, help me. And what do they say? What's that to us? See to it yourself. I have guilt. I have sin. I am convicted. Not my problem. Figure it out. That's your issue. And filled with despair, he takes his own life. Hopeless. Condemned. Under God's judgment. With no hope. And no good news. And no answer to his pain. The second is found in verse 26 that says this, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. There's two attempts at answering the problem of judgment. The Pharisees and religious leaders do not preach the gospel. They preach religion. They preach, be a better person next time. You got yourself into this hole, dig yourself out. Barabbas, the murderer, goes free, and Jesus, the righteous, beaten and handed over to be crucified. This is what scholars and theologians have called for so long the great exchange. Where Jesus takes on the life of a sinner and a wicked murderer, and the murderer gets freedom. The first attempt from the priest is to say that forgiveness is found in your ability to distance yourself from your past sins. See that? Judas, your ability to find forgiveness is in your strength to distance yourself from your former sins. You may have made some mistakes, Judas, so you need to distance yourself from that. You need to get better. You need to change your life. You need to be a better person. And crushed by the weight of that, he takes his life. But the true gospel, the true gospel of what it means to be a Christian, the really good news is that forgiveness is not found in distancing ourselves from our past mistakes, but forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ through faith and repentance who endured our condemnation, who took on the judgment of God's sin that we deserved. Christ bore it in himself. Our hope 
in forgiveness is found in the fact that Jesus took the judgment we deserve. He traded places with us. And that's it. What is our hope for forgiveness? What is our hope of any of these wicked people in this story and other stories? The hope of finding forgiveness, the Bible makes it so abundantly clear. It doesn't give us permission to think anything else. You need to switch places with Jesus because there's only one perfect person and God has called you to be perfect. So if you want to be forgiven, he's got to take your place and you've got to take his. And we would think, how do we do that? How do we do this supernatural like switching? How do we do this like supernatural, you know, Freaky Friday? And it wasn't Jesus just saying, you know what, guys, I I love you so much. You know, let me take this one for you. Jesus did not say, I'll step up and do this for you. He became the very embodiment of all that sin is. He became sin. He became the wickedness of Judas' betrayal. He became the wickedness of the corruption of the Sanhedrin, of the, the religious leaders, the government leaders. He became the wickedness of the murderous Barabbas. He became the horror of your sin and of mine. He became our sin. And in the cross, God does two things that would otherwise be impossible. For one, he pardons those who trust in Jesus. Otherwise impossible, he justifies. He makes those who trust in Jesus legally right as pardoned as Barabbas was that day, you are no longer held in a position of guilt. You're free. You're innocent. You are declared free from this day forward. As pardoned as Barabbas was that day are those who put their trust in Christ. And this legal position is based on on nothing but the perfect record of Jesus. And so what God did on the cross that day with Jesus is he, he pardoned sinners. He pardoned those. He makes the sinner righteous and declares them righteous by the instrument of their faith. Faith in what? Well, it is a belief that Jesus, that we just said that, it's a belief that Jesus takes our sin and dies the death that we deserve to die. He lived the life that we, that we should have lived. It is faith in the fact that, yes, if Jesus was in this room right now, there'd be two kinds of people Wicked people and Jesus. And he died my death so that he could give me his righteousness. The second thing he does on the cross that day is he satisfies God's anger towards our sin. He satisfied God's anger. You know, Jesus did die for people. He did die for you. He did. He did die for sinners. But in a way, he died for... Ultimately, he died for someone else. He died for God. Not that God the Father needed a substitute. Not that God needed salvation or forgiveness. He died for God because he, he paid the price for us in his blood that was owed to God. He paid our debt. He paid our ransom, as the Bible says. He satisfied God. And so Jesus, the God the Son, is going to the cross and saying, God, I'm doing this to satisfy you. I'm dying for you. Not to save you, but to satisfy you. And it's the only thing that can satisfy God. Nothing that you and I can do can satisfy Him. 
It needed to be Jesus. It needed to be the God-man. It needed to be the incarnate God. It needed to be God in the flesh. It needed to be an innocent man who had never broken God's law and had fulfilled it perfectly. If Jesus did not die in your place for your sins, John 3 says that the wrath of God still hangs on you. Because God's judgment has not been satisfied. If Jesus didn't die for you, then God's anger and wrath still are aimed at you. As the Bible tells us in John 3, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What do we do with that passage? You know, prophet Zechariah tells us something else in that, in that story and in that, in that prophecy he tells us something else and further. A time will come where God will, will show favor to his people again, and he'll show favor to his sheep. And there's so much imagery in scripture about sheep and a shepherd. And God says, I'm going to show favor to you, and I'm going to, bring my, I'm going to have union with you again. And God says, there will come a day where I will preserve you, and, and I will, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and we will live in favor with one another. But first, I have to, instead of, instead of destroying you, the sheep, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to strike your shepherd. These aren't coincidences, people. This is God's plan. This is God's good and wise plan for us. God says, I have to, I have to take your shepherd. I have to strike him for your sins. I have to scourge him. I have to kill him. The only way that I can have favor with you is if I do that. Jesus is a good shepherd who became our slaughtered sheep. He was the shepherd who changes places with the sheep and takes and goes to the slaughterhouse. And as, the Bible, as Isaiah tells us, that as a sheep led to slaughter, he was silent. He was quiet as he's quiet in this passage. And he takes the full guilt of our sin so that we could take the full joy of his righteousness. Do you trust in him? Has there been a, that great exchange in your life? That is what it means to know Jesus, to know eternal life, to be a Christian, is to know that great exchange. Where Judas was, Judas's sin was not unforgivable. It was Judas in his guilt and in his condemnation did not go to Jesus. He did not repent of sin and turn to life, the only source of life, but instead he, he remained in his judgment, remained in his guilt. He was not given the gospel. He did not trust in Christ, and it ultimately ruined him. If you trust in Jesus, if you take his life as he has taken your sin, the promise is his righteousness. We are credited by faith with his righteousness, and God looks at us as if he looks at his own son, in perfect love, as if we have never disobeyed the law, as if we are perfect in His sight. What good news that is. Go to Jesus with your guilt, with your shame, with what you may call mistakes, whatever it is, recognizing the, the, the sin in our life. Go to Christ who has died for you and take His forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this plan of salvation for us. 
It's hard to look at the problem of judgment. It's hard to look at the horror of sin and wickedness. And yet, why else would you send your son to be crucified? Why else would you die on the cross? If there was some other way, you would have taken it. If there was another way for us to find forgiveness in your love, why go to the great lengths of sacrificing your only son? The answer is found in this text. It's because we need a substitute. We need a substitute that, like, that is perfect. We need a substitute like Jesus, who is innocent and righteous, who can pardon our sins. And so we, we confess that you are great, that you are the one true God, that you are holy and perfect, and you alone are good. As everyone in this passage has admitted, you are innocent. You're justified in your anger because you love your children. And yet you did not, just, you did not keep that judgment over us, but you, you sent your son to die for us. For you so loved us that you gave your only son to die for us on the cross. And whoever believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. So we look to you. We thank you for taking our sin. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.